Welcome back into the Original Gangsters podcast. I am your host, Scott Bernstein, along with my partner in crime, my co-conspirator, Jimmy Bucciolato, the doc. Hi, everyone. Uh, this week, we are very, very excited to bring in a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, a podcaster, just an overall media superstar, Jake Halpern, who is the host of the acclaimed Deep Cover podcast. They're in season two. Uh, we're going to focus on uh, season two, which is called um, Mobland, and it goes into uh, a corruption investigation in Chicago uh, that, that targeted the Chicago outfit and their reach into the uh, Cook County um, <laughs> political machine, legal system, uh, and so forth. There was a four-year-plus investigation The uh, started in the early 80s, didn't, you know, in terms of the um, cases, everything didn't get adjudicated, I don't think, until the, you know, end of the 90s. Uh, one of the biggest undercover operations in American history, if not the biggest, and Jake is is taking the audience uh, in this, uh, on this fascinating, uh, crazy, compelling journey uh, in, in podcast form where you're hearing it from the, the horse's mouth, if you will, Bob Cooley, uh, who was one of the, the mob lawyers that was involved in this and wired up. Jake, thank you for joining us. We are honored. Oh, guys, it's great to be here. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. So uh, why don't we just dive into the deep into the ocean on deep cover? So uh, first season was about uh, a political drug um, intersection. It actually had some basis in the uh, city of Detroit um, with an FBI agent that was undercover in a biker gang and then eventually ends up with money that's going to Panama and Noriega and uh, it was crazy, uh, but didn't have a ton of um, traditional Italian organized crime. Season two, it's, uh, it's quite, uh, and I say this in the most positive ways, you're, you're engulfed in, in OC and, and in Chicago, OC always crosses over with politics. So tell us how, how, you, uh, how you came across Operation Greylord and, and wanting to do this as your second season. Yeah, so I finished the first season of the podcast and was looking to do an undercover story. And there's actually, a, I guess I'll give her a plug. Jerry Williams has a, is a former FBI agent who has um, a podcast where she interviews. Uh, she herself is a former FBI agent, and she's interviewed – like 200 or 250 former agents, she almost, she basically debriefs them. So I called up Jerry and I said, if you were me, what would you do next? You've, you've, you've talked to so many FBI agents. And she said, check out Greylord. You know, it's kind of said what you said at the beginning, biggest undercover operation ever uh, in Chicago in the corrupt, the corrupt court system in Cook County. So I started talking to Terry Hake, uh, who was the guy that went undercover in that in that um, operation, and and for complicated reasons, I wasn't able to eventually do the Greylord story. But along the way, he said Terry did. He said, you know, you got to talk to this guy named Bob Cooley. Bob Cooley was a mob fixer. He was the guy the mob relied on if if one of their hitmen got in trouble for murder and they needed to get him off and, and bribe a judge. Bob Cooley was the guy they'd hire. He he. He was the interface between the outfit and the political system. And he's got quite a story to tell. And he basically betrayed the mob. Um, you should talk to him. And, he, you know, usually these guys want something. You call them up and they, you know, and I get it. They want they want a cut of the action or what, you know, there's not that much to be had in nonfiction storytelling. But <laughs> I think I must call Bob on the right day because I called him that first time and then he just started talking and he didn't stop for the next nine months. And I've never met Bob in person. I've reported on uh, his activity both as a fixer for the outfit as well as a cooperator. But would you say, I mean, if, if someone asked me to just kind of describe him, uh, and I, I'm interested in if my my description from kind of a third person fits your description as a first person that's worked with him, I would say, like, this guy came right out of central casting from you know Hollywood, if you wanted to put together what like kind of a slick but kind of sleazy mob attorney 
looks and acts and talks like. It's like, to me, Bob Cooley kind of fit that. And I, and I say that both kind of uh, in a positive way and I guess also to a, you know, in a negative way, I guess you could take it that way. But. No, I mean, it's like, it's one of these things too, is like, does life imitate art or does it art imitate life? Like, is this the way he is or is this the way he thinks he should be to be the mob fixer? But totally, I mean, he, he, he made a point of pride. He never wore a tie because he said, you know, I didn't have to. I was Bob Cooley. He wore a gold chain. <laughs> when he went to City Hall, he parked in the mayor's parking spot deliberately. <laughs> kind of like, hey, I can park here if I want to. That's awesome. He would take his dog everywhere. Any restaurant he went, he would, you know, even if it was a fancy joint, you know, he takes the dog in. It's all part of his advertising brand, that the rules don't apply to me. And he's doing this all to impress and attract a certain type of clientele, which is the organized crime set. Now, what's interesting about Bob is he's not an Italian guy. He's an Irish guy who comes from a family of Irish cops. And his dad, uh, by all accounts, was as straight as they come, had studied to be in the priesthood, was a completely honest cop in a, in a police department that wasn't necessarily known for that. And Bob and, and Bob had some brothers who were lawyers who were also straight. And Bob was basically, you know, the black sheep of the family. He was getting in trouble with the nuns at the Catholic school since, like, you know, as soon as he could go to school. And he really tilts off in this other direction where he gravitates towards the mob. So in some ways, when you look at his background, it's unlikely, you know, that he that he goes into this line of work and presents as he does. But I think that's what makes him interesting also. And let, let's talk about what this bust netted. I mean, you're talking about uh, almost 100 public officials being indicted in this case. Uh, almost all of them in federal court, and and most were were convicted. I mean, that's uh, that's mammoth. Yeah. So so that that's absolutely right. Now, just to kind of be clear here, that there's ends up being two separate undercover investigations. The first is Gambat. That that's the one that you're talking about that has something like a hundred indictments. It, okay. It's absolutely huge. And it, then then comes Gambat, which is the one that Bob was involved in. Now, just to kind of it kind of lay the groundwork for some of your listeners who may be less familiar with it. What happens in, in Greylord, which is the one that comes first, the 100 indictments, basically Cork, uh, Cook County is totally corrupt. I mean, you get a parking ticket, you get a DUI, whatever it is, you walk into the courthouse and it's like the, the, the hallways of the courthouse are just lined with these guys asking for money. <laughs> they will pay off the judge. There's not, there's a, it's an understanding. If you can afford it, you are going to circumvent justice. So what Greylord does is they get this squeaky clean uh, former prosecutor named Terry Hake, who's just had it with how corrupt the system is. And he flips over and starts posing as a dirty defense lawyer, but he's really working with the FBI. And he really brings the house down on a lot of this everyday corruption that's going on in the court. I mean, and you don't have to be a wired up guy. I mean, a, a mod up guy. It could be me knowing nothing, walking in there. Oh, don't, don't pay that ticket. Just talk to this guy here. So after Greylord happens, there's like a hundred indictments. The system does get significantly cleaned up, but what doesn't happen is that the mob has its almost own protected system of corruption that has like something of a firewall around it. And it does not go down in Greylord. And the mob continues to be able to use this system to protect its own, to protect its hitman when they get in trouble, to protect its bookies. And so what Bob does, and it's kind of the second act of the story in, in, in Gambat, is one day he walks into the prosecutor's office, totally off the street on a, just a random day, and says, in effect, you may think you've changed the system with Greylord, but let me tell you, the mob guys are still operating with impunity, and I can help you change that because... I am the mob's fixer. I know where all the bodies are buried proverbially. Uh, I know how it happens and I will help you bring it down. And so the feds are intrigued, but they're also like, really? I mean, it's the guy I talked to said, it was like, does this guy have a Messiah complex? This is the prosecutor I talked to who, who, who met Bob. He said, he said, does this guy have a Messiah complex? Maybe, but who am I to say no to the Messiah? So he was so just intrigued enough that he, that he let Bob keep going because if what Bob was saying was the truth, um, it could really kind of dismantle the mob's chokehold on, on, the, on, on city government. And this is corruption in the city of Chicago. I mean, I, I know I'm stating the obvious here, but I mean, this dates back 100 years. 
uh, with with uh, you know the kind of pay for play quid pro quo between the streets and and the the, the halls of power uh, in in Illinois, Chicago, Cook County, um, and I want to touch on the actual individuals that formed that said firewall. Uh, the the Chicago outfit had at least two guys, if not more, that were fully initiated mob members that were either aldermans or uh, people uh, in City Hall. And the two that I'm I'm thinking of right now are, are Pat Marcy and John Darko, uh, John DiArco. Um, and Pat Marcy's real name was uh, Pasquale Marchioni, and he Americanized it. Yeah. And uh, he was, you know, if Bob Cooley was the fixer from the lawyer uh, point of view, Pat Marcy was the fixer in city hall or in, right. in, in the, the halls of power. And Pat Marcy was the guy that, 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 that Bob Cooley was answering to. Um, and in fact, remember I told you the story about how Bob was, you know, the gold chain and the no tie and, you know, walking his dog into the restaurant. I mean, Bob is aspiring to have the kind of organized crime, uh, crime clientele. That's what he wants. But his big break comes when he meets this guy, Pat Marcy, that you mentioned. Pat Marcy, you know, as far as I can tell, we were talking about this a little before we went on mic, but these guys didn't have business cards that laid out exactly what their position was. But I think Pat Marcy was the mob's political boss. If the mob needed uh, whatever it was, a case fixed or a law passed or a judge in a position Marcy was that guy. And so when Bob has a chance to meet Marcy for the first time, Bob realizes if I can befriend this guy, uh, I'm, I'm going to be in, I'm going to be the mob's, you know, go-to guy. This is of course, well before Bob flipped. And that first time that he meets Marcy, Marcy says, yeah, can you fix this case where this hitman's on trial for murder? Um, and Bob fixes the case. And that beco- thus becomes Bob's, kind of rise as as a lawyer that Marcy and the other outfit guys can count on. And Marcy, let's let's uh, let everyone know uh Marcy had quite the uh, auspicious uh debut in the underworld as a henchman for the one and only Al Capone. So I mean, you're talking about a guy that's roots were you know, planted firmly at a time when the Chicago outfit was on the rise. Yeah, that's I'm you know I'm interested to hear you say that because that's what I do. You think that's true? That's and what you, my my, my research has has told me that to be the case. Yeah, I mean you. I think you would know better than me. I know that I'd heard that from Bob and other people, but I could never tell. You know, is that apocryphal? Was this or was this or was this real? No, I mean you know, and Pat, uh, as we were mentioning, he he ran. He was an alderman for the first ward, uh, ran the first ward, which was downtown Chicago, meaning like yeah. you, you were, you're talking about interfacing. I mean, you are the, you are the public face of, of, of Cook County, I guess, to a degree. I mean, you're, you're the elected representative. And yeah. then John, D, uh, John Darko, uh, John Darko was the uh, democratic committeeman. And uh, Fred Rohde was, uh, was another alderman. I'm, I'm not sure the, what, what uh, Pat Marcy's uh, official title was. It's interesting because usually at least in the United States, the point is to to find someone in politics who you can uh, corrupt or bribe, and then they, they go along. But to actually have a made member be a public official, that that's pretty extraordinary. I mean, I, I mean, sometimes that happens in, like, Palermo, like with the Sicilian mafia. But, but that's pretty extraordinary in the United States. I think Chicago is probably one of the only case studies where I, where I can think of, I mean, may, maybe New York at some point, but really Chicago is the only example I can think of where made guys are also public officials. There's like this integration. It's pretty interesting. I mean, in Detroit, we had, I know I'm digressing here. Uh, in Detroit, yeah, we had, <laughs> in Detroit, we had William Buffalino senior who was depicted in the movie, the Irishman, uh, Ray Romano played him and uh, he was a union boss yeah. and a, a very, very, very esteemed criminal defense attorney. But he was also a made member of yeah. the Detroit. He never, he never, he wasn't, he, he never held no, public office. No, he never had public office, right? But he was, he was a definitely a political figure for sure. And you know, it makes sense if you think about it, because if you think about how how the mob eventually 
goes down or takes this huge blow, it's because Bob Cooley, who was not a made guy, he was a he was a hired gun. They were subcontracting the workout to Bob Cooley, right? He was this Irish guy who was a cop from a family of honest cops, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they're paying him to do their work. And so, and it's eventually Bob that betrays them. It's not Pat Marcy that betrays them. So it, it, it makes sense to me that if you could have your guy on the inside be, you know, a member of the tribe, so to speak, you know, a made guy who you can really count on, that it's a safer bet. Um, it's just, you're right, James, it's so bold to think um, that that can happen. And in fact, it was funny, I think this was, I think this was Diarco Sr.'s uh, uh, campaign slogan was, I'm, I'm sure I, I read this in the paper, His when this is Johnny Diarco's father, who also had mob ties. <laughs> they jokingly said his campaign motto was, vote for Diarco and no one gets hurt. <laughs> you know, it's like, this isn't like this isn't like a secret. This is not like you know no one knows what's going on. This is more or less happening, you know, in plain sight. And so, when that happens, um, yeah, I mean, there's not even a pretense of of kind of you know ridding the system of its of its uh, more you know unsavory elements. It sounds like it reminds me of. I know Jake has some experience with uh, I think graphic novels, if I'm not mistaken. But it reminds me of uh, Gotham. Doesn't this whole setup sound like like Gotham City, like, <laughs> like something Gotham out of a comic City? book, right? Really? <laughs> and that Cooley is uh, Two Face. You know, um, I can't think of what the characters, uh, what Two Face, this character, the Harvey he, Dent. Harvey Dent. Yeah, that's what it reminds me of. Yeah, it's 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 you know we know these stories. I, I grew up in Buffalo, so I'm, I'm at the, that had they had their own mob stories. But I remember growing up and hearing the stories about you know was the was the 1960 presidential election fixed and dead people voting? And you're kind of listening to it and you're thinking like, uh, it sounds far-fetched. And then as you start digging into this, you, you come away thinking, no, this is totally plausible. This is a system that is fundamentally corrupted. Um, and and Bob kept in the interviews with me, he said, you're so naive, you're so naive, because I would, I'd be like, really? But I think, I, 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 I think it was a little hard to wrap your head around just how just how dirty and corrupt it was. And I think it it also demonstrates if if you look at uh what Bob Cooley did for the government that yeah, it was in the loop. It was downtown clearly. But the, the corruption also spread out into the neighborhoods. I mean, I I know where a lot of my research dovetailed with Bob Cooley was with Marco D'Amico, uh, the consigliere of, or the reputed consigliere of the Chicago Mafia for a, a long time recently. I believe he died from COVID um, and was uh, No-Nose DeFranzo's top advisor. They were, all, they were out in Elmwood Park. Now, yeah, it's still Cook County, but it's not, if people that know Chicago, you know, downtown Chicago is in an area called The Loop, which is, you know, the hustle and bustle of the loop. You you start getting out into the neighborhoods, it's a, it's a different feel. And although I don't believe D'Amico went down in in Greylord or Gambat, he was collateral damage, I guess, because he was going to Cooley to fix things when Cooley was working for uh, the, the the government and, and was wired up uh, and and ended up sending D'Amico to prison for about a decade. Yeah, you know, uh, so it's just it shows you that it it was more than just Pat Marcy and, and John Darko, uh, Diarco in, in the loop. I mean, you had other people yeah. utilize uh, clearly. I mean, you know, the outfit had a um, a get out of jail free card, I guess, through right. through people like Cooley and Marcy and you know anybody that had access to to the uh, you know to the administration of the outfit or had friends that could help people within that outfit orbit they were gonna you know go to the well as much as they could yeah i mean i almost started to think of it from like a a, a kind of corporate standpoint you know like corporations offer their employees benefits you know they offer them health they offer them dental yeah child care etc like what the outfit is offering is the the most fundamental protection you could have which is to say if you join our organization and you you know you 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 do what we tell you to do and you you, you collect the street tax you pay you're part of this system our system. And in our system, if you get in trouble, we got a guy, we got a few guys 
We're down there in City Hall, and they will make sure that you don't get in trouble and you are safe. You are bulletproof with us. And so on one level, it, it obviously helps the organization function so that they can do all these illegal things, whether it's you know gambling or prostitution or extortion. But it's also a huge incentive for like for recruitment and for morale among you know the corporation's members, if you will, if they know, oh, if I stick with these guys, I'm set because they've got Pat Marcy and they've got John DiArco and they've got Bob Cooley. And so I think that that's one of the important things that that happens as a result of this is when Bob is successful and the mob loses its ability to have this chokehold, this corruption, they also can no longer offer their members that same level of guarantee and protection that if you you stick with us, you're going to be safe. And so I actually think that helps explain how one of the reasons that you know, the, the outfit comes out of this weekend, um, after, after Gambat. You can probably make, and I, I shouldn't say probably, you can make a direct link as I think about it, uh, from Gambat and Greylord to Family Secrets, which was the, what I wrote my book about, which was the, the case that came down in 2005 and really decimated the, the top half of our our top half of the administration, at least uh, in the Mm. Chicago mafia. And uh, you know, they had the the first ever Chicago mob cooperator and Nikki Slim Calabrese who came from the 26th street Chinatown crew. And it makes you, you know, piggybacking off of what Jake just said. It makes you think that if that had been before Greylord and Gambat and guy, and even if it wasn't Marcy and DiArco, it was guys that had replaced them and, and Marcy and DiArco hadn't gone down and the whole, you know, the whole thing hadn't have uh, fallen apart. Maybe Nikki Calabrese never becomes the 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 star witness. Yeah, you think of Dom, and maybe yeah, and maybe the op- Operation Family Secrets never happens. Yeah, I know it's cliche, but you think of the dominoes falling. I mean, that's what I'm like visualizing. And and I think and I want to hear your comment on another thing. And a, part of this is just amplifying what we've already said, but giving a little more color to it. You look at historically the top bosses in the Chicago outfit, even till modern times, and this is now 25 years plus removed from uh, Greylord and, and Gambat, and uh, you're uh, 17 years removed from when, when Family Secrets uh, first dropped. All the top guys, with some exceptions, most of the top guys, they die free men with very few uh, criminal convictions. I, I think of guys like Tony Accardo um, yeah. and and the most recent boss to pass away, John No-Nose DeFranzo. Um, yeah, there's the Joey Lombardos and the Jimmy Marcellos, which are exceptions, guys that uh, died in prison. Um, but, you know, th- 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 these are guys, Accardo uh, lasted 40, 40 plus years on the throne. Uh, DeFranzo lasted 20, 30 years on the throne. And, and these guys were like tiptoeing through the landmines. Yeah. And, and the reason why is what you, what you find out in season, uh, what you discover that Jake, uh, uh, you know, so brilliantly delivers to you in season two of, of deep cover with Mobland, And it tells you why in the Chicago outfit, people were, were, were protected. I mean, in, in more than just, uh, you know, n- normally saying in the mob, you're protected, you're with us. That that can really only go so far in most mobs. That that kind of once you leave the street, that protection's gone. But in in the outfit, that it's uh, they're 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 in some ways they're a unicorn because they were able to keep it going in that direction for so long. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, I I think that it it, it gets me thinking too about. One of the central storylines that we follow in this, and this is is, it, it is why Bob did it. So when he comes in, right, he's this he's this hired gun who's who's their lawyer, who you know they say fix this case, and he knows to the judge, and he does it, and he does this well for a long time until one day when he walks into this prosecutor's office and, and kind of out of the blue, and the FBI basically vets him the way that the CIA would do if a Soviet defector walked in off the street and you're like, who is this guy? Do we trust him? And in fact, I talked to these guys and they had no idea why he had done this. They said, was he a double agent? 
was he a mole? Was he had he was he dying of cancer? Had he lost his mind? Um, and in the end, they actually can't come up with a good reason for why. But when they put the wire on him, he does start bringing in audio of all the guys he says he can get. And so they have to, I, I talked to this one agent, uh, Steve Bowen, and this is like 30 years later. I said, Steve, why did he do it? And he says, you know, I, I still can't tell you why. And so there's all these conspiracy theories about did he, who did he owe money to it, what it was doing, uh, why did he do it, and did he have ulterior motives? Um, I will tell you why I think he did it. I think he did it, and I don't really actually, I kind of allude to this in the podcast, but I mean, I think he did it because he works his way up as high as he can get as an outsider, as this Irish cop that he was. But he's stuck in the end, taking orders from Marcy. And Marcy says, basically, in no uncertain terms, you'll do what you're fucking told. <laughs> and, and Bob strays from that a few times. And they threaten him. And he has to leave town. And he, they, in the end, that's the bargain that Bob has made. That's the bargain these guys make. Is It's like the military. It's a chain of command. And Bob feels stuck in that. And he also gets angry that Marcy owns him the way he does. And I think that for Bob, he's a gambler and he's impulsive. And my personal take is that when he walks in in that office that day, as much as anything, it's a, I'm going to hit the nuclear button. I'm going to take us all down. Fuck you. You can't tell me what to do. And he never came out quite and said that, but he said it in different ways that that's, I think, actually why he did it. And I think that he also, you know, he'll go on and it's true. He said he wanted to clean up the city. And I think there was truth to that too. But I think that there was ego there. And I think that in the end, it was a power move. The only problem for Bob, of course, was that it blew up his entire life. Um, and he's been hiding more or less ever since. Does he, does he think that what, but he still thinks it's worth it? His decision, does he ever have, did he ever have regrets? Okay, so I can't give a total spoiler to this. Okay, yeah, I, I understand. But, but no, but it's, that's, that's the million-dollar <laughs> question that I had in my mind, which is that, like, you know, because he's I visited him in this little, he was rents a room in this little house out in the Southwest where he's, like, eking out a really modest existence. And I talked to him for, like, nine months on Skype, kind of like we're, we're doing and then, and he, there was a, you know, with all these guys, I'm sure you saw too, Scott, there's a lot of bluster and mythology. Like, oh, I'm, <laughs> Quite a yeah, bit. I'm the baddest. He, I'm the, yeah. You gotta, you gotta you know, scrape through it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> keep I mean, scraping look, and scraping and scraping until you get to the truth. Totally. And look, we are like, fair enough. We all have our shtick. I have my shtick, you have your shtick, but these guys, their shtick is like, it's, it's thicker. It requires more. <laughs> and, you know, and when I went out and visited him, he said, you know, there was kind of no hiding how he lived. He lived this really modest existence with his, like, you know, stockpile of Pringles and V8 in his, <laughs> in the floor of his room. And he said, you, you see how I live. And, um, and basically he says, yeah, if I could go back, I would have been crazy to do what I did. And I won't give you all the details of this conversation, but basically after nine months of kind of all this is in this grade and he's just like left with this, this in this room and in this place of, 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 of pretty profound regret. Um, yeah. I, I'm so, I actually never thought we would get there because it's, it's at odds with this other story that we, he started off telling. It, what did his family make of his, you're saying his family, you know, they're a family of cops uh, by all indications on, you know, on the straight and narrow, uh, what was their assessment of their relative brother, son, when he's, you know, the most well-known flashy mob lawyer in Chicago? Oh, so that's, that's, a, that's a question that I was really interested in. And what I did is over the course of the, whatever, 10 months that I was reporting it, I interviewed maybe five of his siblings and, and they all had different perspective. And I'll show you two that I thought were most interesting. He had another brother who was a cop who was a clean lawyer. I mean, he would have been a prosecutor and a well-respected prosecutor, and then he became a clean criminal defense lawyer. And the crazy part is these two guys, Bob and his brother, the clean uh, um, 
I'm blanking on his name, Dennis. Now, Dennis, who was the clean criminal defense lawyer, they worked in the same office. They shared a desk. <laughs> um, and I just thought, like, isn't this kind of the perfect uh, kind of metaphor or whatever for the problems of the system? There's these two brothers sharing a desk. One is clean. One is dirty. They can't disentangle each other. And what Dennis said to me was that, in general, he resented the guys that were bribing because guys like him had to work three times as hard to get the same results. And so that was frustrating to him. I said, did you ever try to talk Bob? He said, no, I wouldn't have made a difference. I wouldn't have been able to talk Bob out of what he was doing. And I didn't want to know half the things he was doing. Um, the flip, other side of that is when Bob flipped and it became public that what Bob had done, Bob left town and Dennis, his brother, who he shared the desk with, was deeply worried that the outfit was going to exact revenge on him because, and the, the FBI said, oh, the, the, the mob doesn't usually do that and they don't go after relatives. And, and that is historically true. But if you're going home to your wife and kids, like, you know, um, so that was the, that was one sibling. The other sibling that I interviewed in the podcast, I thought was just so interesting was a guy who was a yoga instructor in Vermont. He worked at a, uh, a gay-run yoga retreat center. I mean, he could not have been more different than, than Bob. It, and, and he had a really interesting, thoughtful, and pretty profound take, I thought, on who Bob was and how Bob ended up the way he was. He said to me, um, he said at the very end of the podcast, he said, the thing you have to understand about Bob is he's capable of doing good things and is capable of doing very bad things. But the difference between the two doesn't matter to Bob. All that matters is that he's someone that does big things, that he's a man that matters. And I, I was like, wow, that basically depicting an amoral character. And so trying to do my due diligence as a journalist, I had the uncomfortable or what I thought was going to be the uncomfortable moment of reading this quote back to Bob, like that his brother said, which, you know, you got to do. And so I, this is when I was in person and I kind of, I was nervous about this. Like, you know, who wants to be relaying this news from one guy's brother to the next? And I said, Bob, what do you make of that? Expecting Bob to get hot under the collar. And Bob said, well, in a sense, he's right. <laughs> I can see how he says this. And that was one of those moments where sometimes like the shtick with Bob and he would just kind of just be honest about things. So it's a long-winded answer, but the bottom line is by talking to the siblings, Bob comes into focus in a way that is so much more uh, three-dimensional than when I would have just talked to him for however many hours I did. Doesn't that description, though, that his brother gave kind of answer our question about what the motivation was? I mean, he wanted to do big things. Yeah. I mean... I, I thought the same thing, yeah. That's, he did big things on, on both sides of the, uh, of the line. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I'm a criminologist, not a psychiatrist. But I was thinking of um, w w exactly what you're talking about, and and what Jake described is like, he's already the big mob lawyer, and it's like people who are wired that way. It's like, okay, what's next? What's next? I've, I've I'm here. I'm doing it. I've already mastered this thing. What's the next big thing? And, and now, and now you're twenty. You're taking them down. You're 25 years, 30 years removed. What do people think when they think Bob Cooley? They think, I mean, even in, and Jake and the deep cover people at Pushkin are are taking the the notoriety aspect of it and, and you know putting it on steroids so everybody knows. But even sure. before even before Jake and Deep Cover came around, what was Bob Cooley known for? He was known for this. This yeah. is what he was known for. Yeah. It really wasn't the fact that he was a a mob fixer attorney. It was a mob fixer attorney who decided cooperate. to cooperate, and and it, there was all these ginormous ripple effects. And and let me just be clear about this. I feel like I I, I do have to say this. Um, you know, in in researching what Bob did, not taking Bob's word for it, but particularly talking to the, his two FBI handlers, uh, Steve Bowen and Marie Dyson, what he did took not just enormous courage, I mean, like kind of un, unimaginable courage to go in because he's not just day in, out, week out, month out, for years doing this. Um, it also took resourcefulness. He had to think quickly on his feet. I mean, he, if people have this idea of, oh yeah, he, he became an informant. No, this was a guy who was gifted 
as an undercover agent and who showed enormous courage. And that's aside from the moral issue. We can debate the morality of what motivated him to the cows come home, but you gotta, you gotta give him that. And you gotta give him that the effect of what he did did make a huge effort to clean up the corruption that was going on in the city. And so the way that only way that I could think about this was to kind of compartmentalize these parts of the story. And there's the last bit is the kind of why he did it. And do we see him as immoral and amoral or whatever? And you can debate about that. Um, but those other things do stand for on them on themselves. And I, I just feel like to give Bob his due, that has to be clear. You know, I, I want to uh, bring something else up related to this, um, the way the system works for for the outfit, and maybe Jake or Scott can speak to this. This this probably also gave the Italians leverage in the underworld in the sense that if you're African-American organized crime, outlaw bikers, Latino organized crime, you know that the Italians are the ones that have the political connections. And so it's a, I pre, imagine, it's a pretty big equalizer. That's what I mean. I, I suspect that that gave the outfit leverage, too, in the underworld over other ethnic organized crime groups or just, you know, street gangs, outlaw bikers. Uh, can either one of you speak speak to that? Scott, you'd go first. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'll say that I think the timing and the time frame of, of uh, Greylord and Gambad and, and what Bob was doing um, coincided with uh, a time when the outfit's power was waning. Right. Um, and mm. I think it made that feather in their cap or that gun in their arsenal, uh, having those people in city hall, having those people in the first ward, being able to uh, puppeteer the way that they did was an equalizer yeah. or it, it was a leverage point for groups that back in the thirties, forties and fifties and sixties didn't have anywhere near the power of the outfit. But as the seventies and eighties and nineties are coming, the the pendulum is shifting a little bit and I'm digressing slightly, but I will say that what Bob Cooley did, he cut that or what his cooperation led to was cutting the head of the snake off. And the head of the snake was Pat Marcy and, and he's never been replaced. And Marcy ended up, I mean, the bus for all intents and purposes killed Pat Marcy. Pat Marcy died under indictment, I don't know if the trial had started or was about to 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 start. Well, he died. He 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 had a heart attack during the trial. Right. So, um, that that in so many ways was the end of an era, and it was kind of like a before and an after. And and there's really, I'm not to say that the, the Chicago outfit doesn't have uh, leverage points in local politics or in judicial systems, I'm not saying that it's 100% gone. No, I think with with, with especially with local PD, yeah, local police departments. But what's going on now in in Cook County compared to what was going on pre Greylord Gambat and Marcy's death, it's not. They're on. They're in, they're in different galaxies. Yeah. So there there has been a, a major major change. Uh, from from Bob Cooley's cooperation, and I know I started answering one question, finished answering another one, but it seemed yeah, like no, a natural segue to me. No, it's interesting. I mean, there there are obviously other factors that are weakening organized crime around. I mean, like there's off track betting. There's you know there's there's things that are like eat, that are eating into what I mean because the the my understanding is that gambling is where. The outfit was making the majority of its money. The they wheel really that it's the wheel that it all spins around. It's 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 like it's economy. I mean, really, it's the gangland economy. Uh, the the straw that stirs that drink is illegal gambling. Yes, that's 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 my sense from talking to the prosecutors, and and that's starting like you know, I think around the the time of the eighties, and this is when off track betting is starting to become more more profitable um you know they do have their hand in some of the casinos uh, obviously but um i think that their profit potential was dropping anyway probably and and so it's not just that 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 you know these operations took them down um i think that 
The other thing to think, then there's a separate question of, you know, does the demise of the mob create other organized crime opportunities? I think that's kind of what, what James is asking about. And it makes me think of these like old antitrust cases where when they break the monopoly of these, you know, corporate bohemoths, that it does, it does open up the opportunity for competitors to come in. They're not like, we're never going to eliminate the, the, the demand that exists for the services that criminals offer. I mean, well, you know, that's why they, what do they call prostitution, the oldest profession. Um, and so I think that there's always going to be a market for it. And no matter, that's the kind of problem. That's the kind of whack-a-mole problem that, that law enforcement always faces is you, you bust one and then another one is going to pop up. And so, yeah, the, the outfit gets weakened, but then, you know, it creates opportunities for, you know, mom and pop criminal A and B to, to give a shot at it. Jake, uh, let me, um, ask you a question related to future endeavors involving the deep cover brand or as much as you could share with us. I'm guessing because of the popularity of these podcasts, there's been quite a clamoring for television and film rights. Is there anything you can tell us about, you know, if we'll, if we'll be, if we will be seeing a scripted version, uh, of, of the stories that you tell at any point on, uh, you know, any platform. They're developing. I can tell you that for season one, which is the story of the Detroit based FBI agent who infiltrates this drug smuggling ring and he's undercover for like five years and he works his way all the way up to the top where he's basically, it's like Noriega in control. That story, uh, they are developing into a TV show. Now, I can tell you also that, you know, you, these things often die, you know, yeah. typically die on the vine. You, who are you talking to here, Jake? I've yeah, been, do, yeah, right. I've been yeah. doing this for seven, eight years. I've seen, yeah. uh, and you're probably yeah. doing it longer, but I've seen, no, uh, no, no. I know all about it. I know all about it. You know, what do they say? I have a buddy out in Hollywood. This is what is some, like 10 miracles have to happen uh, <laughs> to get made. So I think we're like two miracles in there. Uh, but yes, yeah, so, I mean, it, it, it could happen. Um, but I'm not like, I'm not holding my breath. Um, just because, you know, but I think it's interesting with, with all the uh, explosion of, of the television streaming, it, 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 what I will say that I, it does seem to be slightly different now is that they're looking for content, it seems to me, that, that is world-based, that can sustain an ongoing narrative. Um, and so, you know, if you just have a story that has like, a very finite beginning, middle, and end versus a story that has a whole cast of characters where you can follow them all and it's an interesting world. It's the latter that's going to... Um, so anyway, I don't know. Uh, that That's where that's at. Are we doing a... Uh, are we in preparation for a third season? Yeah, I'm actually... I have an idea that I'm presenting to the people at Pushkin tomorrow. Um, you know, I, I want to be thoughtful about it. I don't want to jump the shark. We've all, we've all, We've all been fans of of TV shows or, you know, where, you know, what is Mel Brooks saying in Spaceballs? God willing, we'll all meet in Spaceballs part two, the quest for more money. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nice Spaceballs so, reference. Great movie. <laughs> yeah. I love Spaceballs. So I don't want to, I don't want to do that. You know, I don't want to like, just, you know, kind of, so I, the idea that I actually have for three, I, I can't fully get into it, but it's a departure. It's not a undercover agent. It's not organized crime. It is someone living a double life. It's a woman, actually. Um, so it's, but it's a fine balance. It's not such a departure that if you like the first two, you'll be like, "What the hell is this?" Um, plus, you know how it is. Y you don't want to feel like you're just working at the widget factory where you're just, you know, you want to, you want to kind of get excited. So we, I, I've been with podcasts with this kind of podcast. I mean, there's this, you know, I'm sure you guys have seen it. It's like, you got to feed the beast. It's like feeding the parking meter. And it's like, keep the episodes coming because you get advertisers and stuff. But when it's reported, uh, it, it takes time to report it. And also, you want it to be good, you know? Um, and so I, I'm resisting the temptation to just kind of like do the next one that, 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 that the, the obvious choice because... I want it to be a story that I'm proud of and that feels like, you know, the listener's not just thinking, Jesus, this guy's cashing it in and giving a <laughs> shock, you know. Uh, I don't want to do that. You know, we have uh, conversations all the time, Scott and I, about, you know, people that come out of the woodwork that want to come on our show. 
and Scott and I will have discussions like, is was this person a big enough deal? Will our audience actually find this interesting? And, and I'm not trying to insult anyone, but but sometimes we we take a pass, and uh, you yeah. know we 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 want because that quality we try to keep it as consistent. And we, as we, can. we don't want to be, you know, just slamming no. someone over the head with something. Yeah. Like we, if we wanted to, we could do every we could do a, every episode on Jimmy Hoffa. I mean, if we wanted to, <laughs> yeah. Because right. uh, we're we're such, uh, you yeah. know, we're in the middle of the the whole Hoffa uh, investigation here in Detroit, and I've written a lot about. Or we could do, you know, we could do White Boy Rick uh, for for uh, twenty episodes. But we try to um, mix in. I mean, obviously, we both have our expertise. But yeah. we try to mix in as much variety as we can. And I I always I go ahead. Sorry, Jake. What were you gonna say? No, no, sorry, you finish. I was gonna say that I always have to check myself because I'm such a nerd. And if I get really excited about something, a lot of times I'll go to I'll go to Jimmy or I'll go to my girlfriend and be like, we should do an episode on this. And they'll be like, only you are interested. In that. <laughs> You're the only that's, person. <laughs> that's a beautiful, beautiful thing about working with a, a friend who tells you the truth. Right. You know? So I just uh, I sometimes I have to ask myself, like, is this something that I'm I want to learn about, or is this something that my whole audience would like to learn about? Yeah. But the thing that's cool about what you guys do is your stories are interconnected. You know, it's like there's all these these kind of like it's almost like you know I love these novels, these Alan first spy novels where these where the, a small character in one novel appears in the other novel, mm-hmm. and you kind of get the sense that Galaxy the stories building. are all delicately interconnected. And I feel like that's the cool thing about the kind of stories that you guys cover is that there are all these connections. So you can kind of come back to it and crisscross over it. Um, also, to be honest with you and the, the people at Pushkin probably wouldn't, you know, I feel like your the business model of your, of that kind of podcast is just better because the hard part for me, what I face is, is I have to go into this production period where I'm, I, yeah, even if I'm racing, it's going to take me, you know, six, to 12 months to, to, to produce 12 episodes. And in the, in the, in that lag period, the feed goes dead and you hope that, you know, the listeners like it enough that they'll, you know, get back into it when it comes on, but it's not ideal. Um, I feel like there's almost, there should almost be a model where you have a, you all, you have a feed where you, you almost switch off, like you tag team in and out. But anyway, all I'm saying is for the listeners, I of love your that show, idea. They know, they know there's a steady, I'm going to get a show on, you know, regularly. And I think it's a, I think it's a big advantage. It's so cool though, that we're in a time now where long form storytelling uh, is being embraced more than ever. There's more bandwidth and, you know, for people that love podcasts and I'm, I'm, I'm now making the opposite argument. uh, But, you know, people that love podcasts can just dive into something like, you know, deep cover uh, and just immerse yourself uh, in it's so it feels so multidimensional and visceral when it, when a podcast is done right, a long form storytelling podcast is done right, and your your all your senses are being stimulated, and you're 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 seeing it, even though it's not being shown to you on a screen, you're seeing it. Yeah, and the only way like a story like that in in the past would be told would be someone would have to get a book deal, right? And and yeah. you might not get a book deal, and now we have this new this new medium you know, where, where you could tell these great stories and you don't necessarily have to go through the gauntlet yeah. of getting a book deal. And you can do them on, you know, you can do them over 10 episodes or 20 right. episodes. I got a little peek behind the scenes of the long form uh, storytelling podcast when I, I was a consultant on Crime Town um, with the G- Gimlet uh, media people. Um, yeah. They did their first season on Providence, Rhode Island. And their second season was on Detroit, and I helped them with their yeah. Detroit stuff. And man, I I gained such a newfound appreciation for what people like yourself and uh, my boy Zach uh, Pointer Stewart over uh, that I worked with with uh, on that. Uh, it's just and, and Mark Sperling, oh, just the 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 craft. It's just to to be to, to be able to do what you guys do. It's there's a real craft to it, and it's more than just splicing together interviews. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that I didn't even fully appreciate it. But, I, you know, when I think about what it takes to produce what they do at Pushkin to do it well, I mean, you, you hear all those names read at the end of the episode. You're like, could all those people possibly be involved? And most of them really are because they have original scoring. They have an amazing musician that scores for television. And, and it's actually listening to the podcast and scoring 
kind of reacting to the to the content. There's someone finding archival sound. There's um, fact check. I mean, it's rigorously fact checked. It's more rigorously fact checked than a lot of the other journalistic places I've written for. And also, they they pay me. They paid me on the first season when I wrote about Ned. I flew to Hawaii to meet this guy who was Steve Kalish, this huge smuggler. I was down in the Caymans with Ned. I was I was in the back swamps of North Carolina with, um, you know, seeing where the where they they came in in their area. In this day and age, it it's really rare that anyone will will put those kind of resources behind a nonfiction story. And so I'm 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 really grateful to Pushkin that that they've done it. Um, Honestly, to be when you talk about that movie deal, the first season, my hope is that uh, they make the the television series just so Pushkin gets enough money that they can say we we broke even on Halpern's project. Let's let's let him keep taking his travels because <laughs> it's really hard to find anyone that will pony up to give you those kind of resources. No, I know we're 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 wrestling we're, we're, with the right same issue right, right now. But uh, if we if we have a little bit of time left. Uh, can we can we ask you about the first season? Because just te- the, tease it a little bit for the uh, you know we're we're based in Detroit, even yeah. though our audience is glo- yeah. is global. We got you know listeners on all five continents. But kind of tell us with the um, or tell the audience how that story started in Detroit. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna start with how, it, how I'm gonna answer that question, but I'm even gonna start a step before that about how it came onto my radar. So a guy that I know out in Hollywood sent me a manuscript for a book. It it didn't even have a a title page. It didn't have the author. I didn't know if it was a novel or it was nonfiction. It it just started something like, you know, Detroit, you know, 1983 biker bar. And it starts telling the story. So I I start reading it, you know, just thinking, all right, what the hell was a slow day at the office kind of thing. And And what emerges in this novel is, this tale of an FBI agent who's working fugitives in Detroit and gets a lead on a guy named Toby Anderson, who's a country music singer, who's also a felon. So he goes to this bar where Toby Anderson is performing that night and he's up on stage. And after he comes down from a set on stage, he follows him to the bathroom and grabs him and arrests him and brings him out of the bar. And there's almost a huge battle, gun battle of the bar. And when he get Anderson in prison, they flip him, and Anderson basically starts telling him in so many words that there's this massive marijuana smuggling ring. This is back in 83. That is like the Amazon or the UPS of marijuana smuggling, bringing in plane loads of hundreds of thousands of pounds of marijuana, and it has big connections down to the Caymans and beyond. It sounds like too crazy to be true. But Ned, this guy who's just working fugitives, who flips this guy, convinces his bosses to let him go undercover and try to infiltrate this drug smuggling ring. And he does this for the next five years, working basically his way up. So this is the story. That's told. So I call back the guy that sent me this manuscript and I said, is this true? Like, what the hell is this? Is this a novel? Is this nonfiction? And he said, no, as far as I know, it's true. I'll put you in touch with the guy who wrote it at the center of it, who's Ned, who's a retired FBI agent living in Detroit. So I hop on a plane, I fly out to Detroit. He's now working as a as a private detective. Yeah. And he starts telling me the story and insisting that almost all of it is true, just a few names changed here and there. And this became this year-long odyssey in which it turns out that in fact it was a drug smuggling ring and the person who effectively sat at the top was Manuel Noriega, who was uh the president or the the general that was running uh, Panama. And when this whole undercover operation gets blown open, it leads to indictments uh, and uh, in a roundabout way to the invasion of Panama. So the, the tagline was, guy walks into a bar to make a routine arrest and it sets off a sequence of events that leads to international war. So when I, I was like, this is crazy. And so I spent anyway, the, the better part of a year do interviewing and finding all the people involved in telling the story. And that's season one of the podcast. Yeah. So for, for our audience that's from Detroit and that's interested in all the Detroit stuff we do, Ned Timmons uh, was a Detroit FBI agent for 25 years. And he was considered the, you know, 
numero uno in terms of uh, guys that you wanted to send undercover uh, to get the job done. Uh, I've heard stories from a lot of different people in the office that, you know, Ned, and this wasn't said in a negative way. They're like, you know, Ned, Ned marched to the beat of his own drummer. Yes. You know, he was kind of allowed to kind of do his own thing because the work that he was doing was so different than the work the rest of us were doing, you know, traditional uh, work in OC or, or, or work in um, drug gangs or cartels or whatever. But uh, Ned was, um, you know, was, was, was really like the, there was kind of a mythology around Ned. And um, then I would hear it on the other side of the law. Yeah, some guys didn't like him, right? Well, I, you know, some guys, you know, I think there's always this uh, rub between, yeah. you know, uh, people that are undercover. You know, <laughs> undercover. Yeah. They look at them. Oh, they're glory hounds. Cowboys. They're glory hounds. They're cowboys. They don't have yeah. to, uh, you know, play by our rules. Yeah. Um, the guy that I was quoting saying he marched the beat of his own drummer was saying it in a, in a, in a very, uh, complimentary line. yeah yeah but yeah, yeah i had heard some people that were just like not talking about ned per se but just talking about undercovers uh i kind of it's like i think in the military they say the same thing about snipers mm-hmm. or like there's yeah. certain they're prima donnas or yeah. whatever but uh ned uh was just known as you know probably the best undercover agent uh that was working in that office at that time and yeah. uh worked a lot of different types of cases so i know he was working oc but then he was also working bikers he's obviously did this whole thing uh, that led to the noriega thing for younger people that might not know it uh you know there's a famous line in a rick ross song where he says i knew noriega the real noriega he owed me a thousand favors yeah not the rapper noriega but no (laughs) rick Rick ross the the rapper shouts out noriega yeah the dictator noriega was by the way was um to, to get in the weeds here, was Michael Palmer involved in this case, marijuana trafficker? Yeah, he was. In fact, the full Michael Palmer story is one that I would love to tell. Yeah. But, um, he was. He did know Ned, uh, and he was. He was involved. And there was that 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 the movie that was that the Tom Cruise movie that they that was yeah kind of American was, yeah. American Hustle yeah no yeah. Uh, uh, whatever not American Hustle about about the uh, CIA about uh, Barry Seal. Right. America. I got to find the name of it now. They did. And th- there was a moment where they started to look into him and not Ned. One of the other guys, the FBI agents I talked to said uh, they got called into the boss's office and uh, were and there were two other guys there. They didn't know who they were. And they were told in no uncertain terms, um, you're going to let this one go. Yeah, I, I asked we one of our contacts was the head of the DEA in Detroit. And I asked him one time having lunch about Michael Palmer. And he was like, he goes, you know, Michael Palmer. So he, and I was like, well, I know, I know of him. I'd never met him personally, but I, I mean, the reason why I'm interested is I think you could connect him to the CIA Contra thing. And I, and I think he was sending guns down South, bringing marijuana back up and, and he was possibly or likely a national security asset. There's, there's, there's a whole story to that. And I, and I, (laughs) I haven't. I don't think that guy's ever going to talk. But I like. In, I, I hold out hope that maybe he'll change his mind. He's, he's getting older. Yeah. Um, and I don't know whether he's still working in some <laughs> cohort capacity. I don't know. Yeah. But yes, he's. He, there's no question. I think at this point that he had some role in all this. Yeah, I'm, I'm eager to get Ned uh, in studio to discuss. You know, he worked uh, the 1991 uh, big. Rico case against the Jackalones and Alan Hilf uh, that came down in, um, uh, no, not, sorry, came down in, no, came down in 91. Isaiah Thomas was called in front of the federal grand jury to account for his interactions with the Jackalones and Alan Hilf uh, in 1990 as the Pistons were winning their second championship. And Ned was in the middle of that whole investigation. And I'm, I'm really eager to, to get him to, to talk about that. And then obviously we, we'd want him to talk about season one, but this was uh, really, I uh, could not have scripted this any better. Uh, Jake, uh, thank you so much. Why don't you tell all of our audience where they could find you uh, personally and then all the, all the deep cover stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the, I'll start with the podcast. It's called deep cover. There's two seasons. Season one is the drug wars. That was the story we were just telling you about. 
And then season two is Mobland, which was the Bob Cooley story. And you can get that on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Um, yeah, it's called Deep Cover. And yeah, I have, I mean, I've got a website, jcalpern.com, but I would say, you know, you're just check out the podcast. I think that the listeners, your listeners would enjoy it. And um, we'll definitely, I, I think you guys have been talking about doing a cross promotion. I hope we can send some traffic your way because you guys haven't, I always find the podcasts that I enjoy the most listening to are ones where it's an actual conversation. It's not just, you know, a bunch of scripted questions. And um, yeah, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks, Jake. And uh, we wish you uh, luck, and hopefully we'll have you back on again. And I just want to remind our audience to please subscribe to us, follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, We're on Twitter. Uh, We have a presence on YouTube. Hopefully that's going to uh, be expanding. And hopefully this episode, at some point we're recording, it will be on uh, video. You'll be able to listen to the audio very soon, but hopefully the video will be up soon. And uh, please check out Deep Cover Podcast. I'm Jimmy Bucciolato. I'm Scott Bernstein. Thanks to Jake Halpern and uh, Mark behind the glass. We'll see you next week. We're out.